If you were not here last week, we have started a new sermon series that we are calling Quirks because it's this, this word that we hear um, used to describe Redemption Church a lot of times, that we're quirky. And so I figured, well, let's just lean into it and talk about why we're quirky. Um, and part of it is that we don't fit into some of the very typical religious categories where people just file people, things like evangelical, Protestant, Catholic, liberal, conservative, fundamentalist. They, these words don't seem to describe what we're like. And the reason for this is, I think, that this is what God is doing in the world right now. That God is, is kind of drawing people from all over the place to this new center of Christianity in the West, and it's, it's not built on those old, old categories. It's really built on Jesus and his teachings, especially an emphasis on the Sermon on the Mount and the Gospels. It's um, based on the, the whole rich tradition, not just your little corner, but the whole thing, the importance of Christian practices, um, the, how the story of God is supposed to change our imagination for what it means to be human, um, for life in the world and everything. And redemption, I think, is being drawn to this new center. And we're not alone. There's a, a ton of churches. And so we don't fit with the typical categories were kind of quirky and weird. And so for these six weeks, we're talking about um, quirky in what way are we quirky? And last week we talked about um, the idea that the gospel has kind of been reduced in, in the last few hundred years. It's actually not about just how to get in heaven when you die. It's about the kingdom of God and how God is making all things new through Christ and God's reign and rules extending to everything and that we're supposed to be part of this. And today we're going to jump into another just foundational idea for Christianity and it is the role of beliefs. So buckle up, should be good. <laughs> so the Bible often speaks about the cosmos as sort of existing in these two realms. There's the realm of the earth, right? Kind of the natural world, plants and animals, rocks and trees. And then there's the, the realm of the heavens, which is more of a spiritual realm for spiritual beings. And there are all kinds of different kinds, including God. And scripture consistently sort of makes a distinction between things of earth and things of heaven. But humans are, are an interesting bunch. We're made of the dust of the earth like all the other animals, but God breathed God's own breath, the breath of life, the Ruach Yahweh into our lungs, and we came alive with the image of God, giving us these special capacities for things like language and reason, um, for meaning and, and beauty, but crucially, with this awareness of that whole other realm, we have this capacity to relate to God, a spiritual capacity of some kind. And with this capacity, humans experience a kind of elevation in our being, for lack of a better term. I mean, we're animals um, made of earth, living in the natural world, and we're spiritual beings with the capacity for God. And so the whole story of God is, in a sense, a tale of two realms, heaven and earth, and a tale of two humanities, our animal nature and our spiritual nature. And the story begins, of course, with humans placed in this garden where, at the very beginning, heaven and earth are kind of one thing. They're interlocking. 
And as long as they partner with God, they can inhabit these two realms simultaneously, right? Living on earth, but drawing their life from this relationship with God. In, in the story, it's symbolized by eating from the tree of life. So they're receiving God's own life, and it's sustaining them. And in this, God gives them, like, authority over the earth. Remember, they name the animals. This is kind of taking authority. But then in Genesis 3, very quickly, one of the animals, a serpent, entices the, the humans. He like, lies to them, convinces them they can rule the earth and get access to eternal life on their own terms without God in this tree. And so kind of symbolically, an animal convinces them to trust in their own animal nature and their ability just to, to guide their own spiritual journey. And they sort of cut themselves off from God and end up then in hiding actually. And so from there on, you know, under, under their leadership, the human leadership, the world is subjected to the harsh animal nature of what it means to be human. Brutality, fear, injustice, selfishness, self-preservation, and violence. These things enter the picture. If you remember, one of the very next things that happens is Cain and Abel try to find a way to draw near to God after they're cast out. So they bring an offering, a korban, a bringing near thing. And for some reason, God accepts Abel's offering, but not Cain's. And then evil comes for Cain, it says, like, a, like an animal, like a roaring lion, ready to devour him, right? This animal vying for control over his life. And God tries to warn him, like, don't let the animal devour you. But he does. It overtakes him, and Cain kills Abel. Um, and this keeps happening, this kind of dance between the spiritual and animal side. Um, later in the book of Daniel, um, one of my favorite stories when I was a little kid, King Nebuchadnezzar goes mad and is portrayed as an animal. If you remember how it goes, he was driven away from people and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of the heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird, right? We love this in Sunday school. We would make so much fun. Poor Nebuchadnezzar, All right? Um, few, actually, a few chapters later, Daniel has a dream about these four wild animals that ravage the earthly kingdoms. There's a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a beast with iron teeth and ten horns. Um, to maybe my surprise, there was no stock art anywhere for a beast with iron teeth and ten horns. So just went with that. Um, these things rise up out of the sea. The sea stands for chaos, remember, in the story. Rise up from the chaos to rule the realms of the earth, and they just savage each other like animals and tear the world to pieces. And then this fifth animal appears called um, Bar-Enosh, usually translated son of man. Um, just means the, the, the truly human one. And this this one, it says, returns to the ancient of days, goes back to that God of the beginning, of the, uh, way back in Eden. And this God gives this Bar Enosh authority to reign and rule. Not just him, but, but his people, holy people, set apart people, are asked to lead the world in faithfulness because they know how to hold these two realms together. That's their gift to the world. We could keep going on this. There are tons of these stories about animals and, and them symbolizing this, this struggle. Um, but but this, is, this is all over the Bible. The Hebrew Bible, the New Testament, the tale of two realms of heaven and earth, the tale of two natures, our animal and spiritual nature. And these two aspects of reality are always kind of in tension with one another. And it's not that one is good and the other is evil. 
I mean, God does creation and says, this is good, right? But um, their intention, for sure. And part of the human task is to, to hold them in tension. And so in the scriptures, um, we're, we're asked, humanity is asked to try to figure out how to become bar enosh, truly human, holding together the animal and spiritual natures, the, the um, physical universe and this capacity to commune with God and to live our lives in the realm of earth, but with a deep connection to the divine and the realm of heaven. And there's this, this tension. It lives throughout the story of God. And, and it really comes in often in the form of a question, how do we do this? How do we become Bar Enosh? How do we faithfully perform this human vocation? That's kind of the meta story of Scripture. And it's really ground zero for the life and teaching and ministry of Christ. He even borrowed, straight from that passage that I read in, in Daniel, he borrowed that title, Son of Man, that's what he called himself. The truly human one. And so Jesus and his life and ministry was really about teaching people how to become fully human, the sons of men, bar and ash, and faithfully perform this human task of holding these two realities, these two realms, these two natures together. But at some point, um, you know, through the, in the life of the church, something strange happened um, to that kind of holistic vision. And I think the temptation was always there. You can see it even in the scripture. But it was supercharged in Western Christianity during the age of the Enlightenment. And really, it just kind of swept through Christianity. Instead of asking like that big question of how to become Bar Enosh and faithfully perform the human task of holding together the animal nature and spiritual nature, the realm of the earth and the realm of heaven, the question changed. It was actually distorted and morphed into how to leave behind the realm of earth and get in entrance into heaven after death. How to kind of exchange these animal bodies for heavenly bodies and a heavenly nature. Even though those questions are, are nowhere to be found in the Hebrew Bible. And they are not the driving questions for Christ's life and ministry. They are really a byproduct of the Enlightenment. And, and that way of thinking that kind of emerged during that time. And so since that time, the problem that Scripture is focused on has kind of been distorted, and the question has been changed. And so kind of stands to reason that the, the answers that were gleaned then from the story of God changed also. So if the question was, you know, how to leave earth and escape to heaven, the answer became, well, you need to have faith, which in the age of reason, faith was de de defined as just giving mental assent to truth claims, right? S faith became synonymous with belief during that time. And so Christianity, since then, has been obsessed with belief. I mean, Christianity divided one time over beliefs in a thousand years. Twice after the Reformation, the Age of Enlightenment, and then it just went and has been dividing over beliefs ever since that time. Hundreds of different denominations saying our, our beliefs are better than your beliefs. It's just obsessed with arguing about them, policing them, enforcing beliefs, proliferating them, and Christianity was kind of reduced to a belief system that was 
sometimes followed, mostly just argued about. And that's a real problem. Because, for one thing, it's not faithful to the story. For another thing, it creates a situation where one can live like an animal, vicious and brutal, violent and cold, but as long as they held the right beliefs, then, you know, eternity is theirs. For they could go to heaven when, when they die. And all, all the earth and all the non-believers can go to hell, right? And this is not the story. It's not the story of God. It's not the ministry of Christ. He was asking not how to escape earth and go to heaven, but how can heaven come to earth? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's his prayer. How can these two overlapping realms, heaven and earth, and these two overlapping natures in us, how can they come together and us actually become bar enosh, the human one, sons of men, and learn how to hold these things together faithfully? My favorite story for exploring the dynamics of how Jesus managed this is the one we read earlier from John 3, the story of Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, we're told. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. And he came at night because in the Gospel of John, darkness represents a spiritual darkness, um, separation from God in the spiritual realm. So Nicodemus is in the dark in more ways than one. But he comes to Jesus respectfully, calls him rabbi, sign of respect. And he says, look, I've seen the signs you've been, you've been doing. Like, uh, I think it's obvious you come from God. Um, you have access to this spiritual realm. And so my question is, how did you do it? Like, how do you have this access to God? And his, Christ's answer to him is this, this strange metaphor. He says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Right away, once you notice, he, he talks about the kingdom of God. It's right front and center. So that references everything we said last week. If you missed last week, please go listen to that. So then he says, no one can see this big kingdom of God thing from their, their animal nature in a sense. They're, they're, unless they're born again, they're just kind of stuck in the, in the darkness. This word again, born again, in Greek is anothen, which has these two meanings. It means again, like as in anew, but also from above. And it's not like it can mean one or the other. It, oh, it means both at the same time. So the, anothen means born again, like anew, from above, from, another, from that heavenly realm, the place where, where God lives in, in their cosmology, right? Now, I don't know about you, but for much, much of Christianity in the West, including my upbringing in the Southern Baptist Church, this is not what born again meant to the Southern Baptists. It meant scare people at church camp until you give mental assent to certain truth claims about Jesus, and then you walk down the aisle freaking out, usually crying, um, and, and ask Jesus in, into your heart, right, so that we can go to heaven when, when we die. And this is not the question that Nicodemus brought, nor is it the question Jesus is answering. And that's not what his answer meant. He doesn't say, like, I'm going to need you to agree to a few things about me, right? And then you might want to, like, codify this in a prayer, like a sinner's prayer. I would like to hear that. And maybe speak in tongues if you're, like, from that tradition or go through confirmation. For sure, I'm going to need you to sign these belief statements right here. Um, he doesn't say any of that stuff. He says, you must be born again from above. And, and Nicodemus is, he didn't get it. He's like, okay, born again from above? Like, you can't enter 
to your mother's womb. Like, I can think of at least a couple of problems with this. And so he's like, he elaborates. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirits. Now, now, when we hear born of water as Christians, we think baptism. That is not what they're talking about. It's just not in their imagination. When Nicodemus heard born of water, he knew what that meant. It meant natural childbirth. To be born of the waters, the waters are amniotic fluid. This is how everyone is born into the world. This is how the world was born, through the waters of chaos in Genesis. This is how the people of God were born, through the waters of the Red Sea, the waters of the, the Jordan, right? Everything gets on earth gets born through the waters. Um, and so there's that category. And then he says there's this whole other category born of the spirit of God, of this other realm. And he's saying you have to be born of, of that. There's a deeper reality at work in the world that most people can't see. And Jesus is like, look, I can see it. I can see, I can see you can't see it. And I'm sorry, you'll see it when your spiritual nature comes to life. You have to be born again from above with this, uh, this attachment to spirit. And then you'll become just a whole new kind of human. There's a new way to be human. And it happens on earth, but its source is in the heavens. It draws its life from God is what that means. And Jesus said, look, you shouldn't be surprised at what I'm saying. You must be born again. Like the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who's blown, who is born in the spirit. He, he's basically saying, I'm quirky. I mean, he's just coming out with it. I'm quirky. I know my life seems very weird to you. But you shouldn't be surprised. Like those born of this whole other spirit, people who are awake to that, it's like they sail under a, a different wind. Can't really see where it comes from or where it's going. You just follow and it makes you quirky. That's how it works. And Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. <laughs> he just says, how can this be? Which is like, duh, in scripture talk, right? And Jesus is like, you're Israel's teacher. You can tell he's frustrated. You're Israel's teacher. You don't understand this? He's like, I've spoken to you of earthly things, this realm, and you don't believe. Then how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Like, I talk to you about things you can see. I'm talking about things you can't see. How are you ever going to believe that? And, and so he appeals to one of Israel's big stories. He says, it's like in the wilderness when everybody's snake bitten. Remember that? And they're poisoned and they're, and they're dying. And Moses lifted up this statue of a snake, which was a symbol of their venom and complaining. And, and when they saw it, they sort of woke up and were like, oh, I get it. The snake that's biting us is us. It's our venom, our complaining. And when they saw it, they, they were healed, right? He's like, I'm going to be lifted up, and people are going to see this whole new reality. They're going to see it in, in me, that, that we're not mere animals. We're more than just mere animals inhabiting the realm of earth. It's not just physics. But we have this spiritual nature that comes from God, from the spiritual realm. And discovering that, coming to life to that, it's like being born again, anew, from above. It's a whole new way to be human. And then comes one of the most like, well-known passages in the Bible, John 3.16. And I'm going to give it kind of a weird, overly literal spin, okay? Because it's so familiar to us that, that we miss it. So if you haven't heard this before, hopefully it'll sound weird. And I'm trying to do that on purpose because I want this to kind of explode your brain. So you could... Translate it like this. God loved the world 
in this way. The son of his, the only, is given so everyone that pistuo in him no should be perishing, but should be having zoeing ionion. Kind of weird. Kind of weird to hear it that way. Were you trying to translate it to the one that you memorized as a kid? Um, I, if I don't mix it all up, all we, all we remember is what we memorized when we were young, or like what we think of when we see the guy in the end zone with the John 3.16 sign at the football game, if they still do that, right? And, and we'll miss the radical thing he's, he's saying. And kind of the center of it is, is this word, um, pistuo, which is usually translated as belief. Like how many of you memorized John 3.16 and it was whoever believes in him will not perish. Anybody else get that? Okay, right. So the word we translate believes is pistuo in Greek. Say pistuo. Yeah, so let's remember this word. Hang on to it. Um, pistuo is the verb form of a noun. The noun form, of the same, same word, same concept, the noun form is pistis, which means faith. Pistis always means faith. Pistis is in the New Testament like 248 times. Almost every time it's in English translations, it's translated as faith. In fact, there's four times it's not in the ones that I could find, and each time it means trust, but it really means faith. This Pistis means faith, and that's all it means. The problem is, when you're translating the verb form instead of the noun, there's no verb form of faith the word faith in the English language. So pistuo always gets translated belief. It's really not what it means. Especially because belief after the enlightenment became mental assent to truth claims. It's really not what it means. And so my solution, you should be familiar with, my solution is let's just make faith a verb. Put ing, faithing. That's what pistuo means. It's faithing. It's an active kind of faithing forward. Pistuo means faithing, trusting, living in fidelity to Jesus, following with your feet, living in allegiance that believes in Christ and this new way to be human. This is what pistuo means. This is what it means to be born again. And the result of this faithing is no should be perishing, but should be having zoeing ionion. Zoeing just means life. Ionion's an interesting word. It's usually, did you learn it everlasting? Life everlasting? Or eternal life? Which is kind of deceiving because Ionion, um, you, can, you can kind of hear the word eon, eons in there. It, it does refer to a duration of time, but not eternal time, like time going on forever. That's another big enlightenment idea. It's not an inexhaustible quantity of time. It's an inexhaustible, like, quality of time. That's Ionion. It's, it's a life, Zoeen, that's like that, inexhaustible quality. Too alive to die, in a sense, because it's sources of an inexhaustible kind. That's Zoeen Ionion. It's, it's life inexhaustible. And so what Jesus is describing for Nicodemus here is not a gospel of sin management, or just a, a trick to get into heaven when you die. It's a whole new way to be a human being. It's like being born again from above, he says. Through faithing in Jesus, falling with your feet, and thus making the source of your way of being, your path, 
um, this connection to God this, that comes from the heavenly realm. And so coming alive in a whole new way. A life, in fact, that's so alive that it can't be overcome even by death. This is how he explains it to, to Nicodemus. And, it, and this is really the simple teaching that churches today are coming back to in droves from all different traditions. This idea that Christianity is not a belief system. If you want to take a picture of something and chew on it later, take a picture of this because it's kind of the summary of all it. Christianity is not a belief system. It's a new way to be human that we experience by pistuo, faithing, fidelity to the Jesus way of being that is like being born again from above. And as our spiritual nature is awakened, we live in deep connection to God, the source of life whose spirit then kind of sails us like a wind sails a boat, just making us quirky, quirky as all get out, but bringing us alive with an inexhaustible life over which death has no power. That's gospel. That's, that's what he's talking about. For the next four weeks, um, the remainder of this series, we're going to talk about what we mean by faithing. Just, we could go on forever. That's always what we're talking about. For the next four weeks, we're going to talk about four of kind of the big ones, what faithing entails. And there's a ton we could say about it. For the rest of our time today, I want to ask then, what is the question, what, what is the um, proper role of beliefs in Christianity? If Christianity isn't a belief system, um, Beliefs obviously still play a really important role. So what is the proper role of belief in a life of faithing? And um, the belief I'm talking about is a kind of, um, it's a bit rational, sort of like the Enlightenment. Um, Our beliefs, what we believe to be true, it's something you can write down on a piece of paper. An articulation of what you think to be true about life and the world and what it means to be human. Some kind of a thought or idea to which you give mental ascent. And there are, there are limits to the power of beliefs, right? I mean, just because you believe something doesn't mean you're going to follow it. Like, I, I believe Snickers are bad for me, but that, that belief has no impact on my life, right? Other than to make eating Snicker bars a little more enjoyable, because I know that it's bad, right? Um, so belief is, um, belief has power, but um, without faithing, belief is kind of impotent. But very often our beliefs have a dramatic impact on our actions. Like if, if you believe a ladder cannot hold your weight, you're probably not going to stand on the ladder, right? If, if you believe your spouse is honest with you, then you're not, you don't have to go checking up on them all the time, reading whatever, their texts or whatever. Beliefs do influence our actions, our faithing. But here's, here's the big thing. Beliefs are meant to be dynamic and constantly changing. Our beliefs are meant to be dynamic. They need to be. Our our beliefs in God, especially, are a little bit like friction. Something to push off of and and get us going. I mean, you you know this, right? Like, all, everything that you can say about God is eventually wrong, right? Like, pushed to its logical 
extreme. We're trying to say the unsayable here. Anything you say about God falls short of the reality of God. It's one of the best things about going through seminary all the way as far as I have is, is that I can find heresies in everybody's belief. It's really fun. It's like we just hang out and talk about, no, that's not quite right. It's like, it's a, it's a, it's like a superpower, um, twisted superpower. And then you see them in yourself and you're like, man, I'm, I shouldn't be teaching people. Um, but you, anything you can say is true, but in some sense also not true when you're talking about God. But you have to try. You have to say it anyway. You need to, even if it seems heretical. Because belief is this attempt to bring our experience of God to speech. And we have to try to speak it, to say it, even if we say it wrong. Especially if we're giving voice to our doubts. We have to give voice to our doubts. Because if we don't, we'll just pretend we don't have them. We'll pretend belief and deceive ourselves and begin to live um, inauthentically. Until pretty soon we're just living self-deceptively, right? And this does not lead to the life that is, um, you know, inexhaustible. Or you might say it this way. Self-deception is a much bigger risk to us than heresy. Does that ring true? Like, I'm not worried about any of us becoming like a famous heretic and leading the world astray. But all of us are deceiving ourselves in ways that hurt our, us, the people around us, and the world around us. You know what I mean? I mean, this is, this is a reality. <laughs> Self-deception is a way bigger problem than, than heresy. Everybody has a heresy, or two, or ten, right? And the way to correct both the heresies and the self-deceptions is to try to bring our experience of life and the world and God, what it means to be human, to bring it to speech. Talk about it. Trot it out in front of other people. Let them crash into it, crash it into our tradition, into our scriptures. Just try and tell the truth about what we believe and then hold it loosely so that our, our beliefs can change and grow over time. I mean, if you, if you look carefully at the role that belief plays in the New Testament, the vast majority of the time, the call to believe or to belief is typically not about holding on but letting go, almost always. And Christians should always be saying, yeah, I don't know what I believe on that thing anymore. Like, I try not to look over there because it just bugs me, right? Or that's in process for me. When I do look at it, I feel confused, but I, I try to think about it, right? I always say, if the you of five years ago doesn't call the you of today a heretic, you're doing it wrong, right? That's how it should go down. My favorite analogy for, for belief um, this is where I'll leave this today, is, is the walking wall, which should be familiar to you. How many of you have gone down and seen the, the wall at the Nelson? Would highly recommend doing it and then using it as a way to contemplate this idea. It's, a, it's this sculpture um, by a guy named Andy Goldsworthy, and his crew built this rock wall. It's about 100 yards long. Um, and they did it without any kind of cement, using old techniques. They just fit this stuff together with... Big rocks, heavy rocks, little rocks that kind of, um, and pebbles that make it strong and solid. And Goldsworthy says he got this idea actually from the rock walls that are all over Kansas City. He's, he's like, it's almost like they just kind of grew out of, out of the ground, which of course they did. As farmers cleared the soil to farm it, they would stack the rocks into walls. 
I think beliefs are like that. They grow out of the soil of our, of our life, our experiences of life, of God. And our task is to articulate them, like you articulate a stone and build it into, to work together with others to stack them and see if we can make something of meaning, something of beauty with them. So they build this wall. It's about 100 yards long. Once they finished the wall, they began walking it forward. That's what they did. They, they took the stones from the tail of the wall, took them apart, added them to the front of the wall, building them um, over again onto new terrain where it had never been before. So it's like walking forward on, on to new ground. They can move about 10 or 12 yards a day. And th- so this wall was fully de- and reconstructed five full times o- over 500 yards. Um, it started in this empty field beside the museum, came across the street at one point. He's like, when, when it crossed the street, that's when you figure out who believes in, in mystery and magic and who doesn't, right? Like, that's how you tell. And because um, it was blocking traffic. It goes, it's, for a time, into the museum. It's going up and down steps and, and then is out in the sculpture garden where it lives today. And I think this wall is a good image for how beliefs function in the life of the church and our faith in. The, the church is kind of like this walking wall. And our, um, each rock is like a belief, one of our beliefs. And the task of faithing is just to keep the, the wall moving forward on the terrain of today. And to do this, we have to constantly go back to our old beliefs and deconstruct our faith, carry it forward, and as we go, um, kind of adjust to the terrain and then build it again for the next part of the ground. Our faith has to adjust to the terrain of our times. It just does. And sometimes weird things happen, like the wall will have to cross another wall. That happened at one point. We encounter other, other places. Or sometimes it has to like go around trees and up and down hills. And you don't just like change the terrain so the wall can be the same. You don't cut down trees. You go around them, right? You don't flatten out hills. You go over them. But wherever it travels, it's the same wall. Same exact stones. Nothing's added Nothing's lost. We don't throw away beliefs. We just fit them into the wall in kind of a different way. Or you might say they come to play a different role on different ground. They come to mean different things. And, you know, sometimes we hold on to a belief just to remind ourselves of how terrible it was. Theological, you know, justifications for racism or slavery, patriarchy, or violence. We have to carry those rocks with us. Tell the story. And we tell our kids, yep, that's what we use this rock for. Don't do that anymore. But that's part of the story, right? Part of the wall. And you keep it moving forward. You deconstruct, you reconstruct. Let it keep moving. The tail feeds the front so that the thing can stay alive. Keep moving and changing and growing in reaction to what is coming ahead. I really think this is what we're trying to do as a church with, with our beliefs. And some people want to change the wall into a fortress. They want to fight about the, the superiority of our beliefs, right? Which is not the wall's nature. Some want to freeze the wall in place, like cement it together, because they don't want to change any of their beliefs. But then the wall can't move. And as the world moves forward, the wall gets left behind. And this is what's happening with the church, much of the church today. Faithing means 
taking up those old beliefs, those ancient stones of our faith, and holding them in our hands, our beliefs, looking at them, learning their shapes, feeling their weight, carrying them forward, and building them into this new walking wall of the church that's always moving forward. Just keep faithing it, faithing forward, following Jesus, trusting God to lead us as we um, hold together the, our two natures, heavenly and earthly, our animal, our spiritual natures, these two realms, and then walking forward in this deep connection and relationship to God, working constantly with our beliefs and kind of a playful, artistic, creative move. That's it. That's a pretty good image of how beliefs work. They're incredibly important, but they're dynamic and their meaning changes on us. We have to hold them loosely. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for this story of Nicodemus and for um, this crazy savior who would let his boat just sail where the wind of the Spirit would take him. And I pray that we could learn what he meant when he said, you must be born again from above. And I pray that we could all experience that reality. Pray that it would be so in our lives. Amen. I invite you to stand if you would. And we're going to receive communion now. Um, the reason we receive communion each week is that on the night when Christ was um, betrayed, he sponsored this little meal with his, with his followers. He took some bread and a cup, and he, they all shared in it together. And he said, the bread is like my body, broken for you, and the cup is like my, my blood. It's, it's a new covenant, a new deal between humanity and God. And he said, this is how you become new, in a sense, born again. Like, take my life into your life. It's like eating from the tree of life. And he said, Receive this and be, be made new. And you become kind of my hands and feet in the world. And then just go out in the world and let the world feast on you. And, and maybe they'll come to see the life that is really life. He said, every time you get together, do this. And so that's why we do this strange communion thing at the end of our services. And it's also why we just ask, invite anybody who calls on the name of Jesus to join us at the table. And um, so you are invited. Um, if you would just pray with me and let's pray a blessing.